Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. If this is your first time listening, I strongly suggest beginning with episode one, A Murder Most Foul. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Before we get to the events of the early morning hours of October 6th, 1974, and the terrible death of Christine Taylor, now would be a good time to remember the events that led up to the evening of October 5th, the night before the murder. What was the tsunami of change that affected the Taylor family in the months, weeks, and days leading up to the murder that created an environment that would cause the enthusiastic exorcist, Reverend Peter Vincent, to knock on the Taylor's door and invite Michael down to the church for a good old-fashioned charismatic exorcism. Oh, the Reverend suggested, it's probably a good idea to send the kids away. We could be there all night. Michael, apparently, was sick enough or disturbed enough or beaten down enough, or embarrassed enough, or scared enough, or just simply tired enough, that he agreed. But after what he had witnessed in his own living room, as Marie Robinson attempted to perform this same rite on poor Mavis Smith, how could he have had any confidence that these people had any idea what they were doing? Let's recap. Michael and Christine Taylor were a happily married couple and parents to five young boys. The economic situation in England in 1974 was a bleak one, and Michael Taylor was feeling the worst of it. Chronic back pain and a disappearing industrial working class in his home of Yorkshire County robbed Michael of any feelings of stability that had existed only months earlier. But he wasn't seriously depressed, maybe somewhat anxious with regard to future prospects, but things he believed would work out eventually. The Taylors had a friend in their neighborhood named Barbara Wardman. Barbara has been variously classified as a busybody, a good Christian, and a concerned friend. My contention would be that she's an equal measure of all three. Suffice it to say that Christine Taylor considered her a concerned friend because, on Barbara's advice, Christine suggested to her husband Michael that they attend a meeting of the Gauber Christian Fellowship Group. The Gauber Group was an offshoot of St. Thomas's Anglican Church and, like most Christian home groups, was a very informal worship group, not led by the vicar but by a lay preacher, where people could pray and sing and ask questions, and enjoy honest human interaction 
that promised to fill the soul with joy and gratitude. Michael and Christine were so impressed that they converted to Christianity after the very first meeting, mostly due to the effervescent leadership supplied to the group by Marie Robinson. Ms. Robinson was 22 years old and a self-described Jesus freak who often spoke in tongues and implored others to do the same. And she was an aspiring exorcist. She was also accused by Michael Taylor of being in league with Satan. More on that later. It should come as no surprise that after jumping into a close, intensely personal relationship with the young lay preacher, Michael soon found himself to be in love with Marie, despite having witnessed an attempted exorcism where an elderly woman in the group was basically attacked by Marie. But the heart wants what it wants, and Michael's feelings soon became too obvious to ignore. It was the aforementioned Barbara Wardman who suggested the two of them deal with their feelings in a healthy way, alone, in an upstairs bedroom, while Michael's wife and the rest of the group waited downstairs. What could go wrong? No surprise, Michael made his move once they were finally alone and was soundly rejected by Marie. Moments later, once they rejoined the group downstairs, they explained that they had overcome their passions and scored a great victory for the Lord. Then Marie took it a little too far and embarrassed Michael in front of the group, in front of his wife, by giving a detailed explanation of what actually happened in the room. Michael snapped and attacked Marie, grabbing for her throat, clawing at her face, until he was restrained by several members of the group. That would be Michael's final meeting at the Gauber group. Marie, however, wouldn't let it go. Her Christian faith demanded she try to help this obviously troubled man. Did she recommend a doctor or a therapist? No. She went to an exorcist, the Reverend Peter Vincent. On hearsay alone, the good Reverend was certain that Michael Taylor was possessed. Really, really possessed. His first attempt to get Michael and Christine to agree to an exorcism was rebuffed. But then Michael's behavior took a turn for the worst. Obsessed with phases of the moon, demanding his neighbors drink milk, screaming in the streets for no apparent reason, Michael was spiraling and was just vulnerable enough that when that knock on his door came on that fateful night in October, he agreed. From Cavalry Audio, this is The Devil Within. Episode 5. Misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In truth, Michael resisted mightily at first when the good reverend knocked on his door that night. In fact, when Reverend Vincent appeared in Michael's doorway, he had to duck. Michael took a swing at him for suggesting that he was possessed. And it was in this moment that a major opportunity was missed. A companion of Reverend Vincent's, we'll meet this man in a moment, would later testify that this first experience of Michael Taylor, the explosive violence, caused him to suggest they take Michael to a doctor. It was mentioned by one of the group. Somebody did bring that up. I I remember this from the evidence. Definitely somebody said, do you think this would be better served by us taking this clearly very, very disturbed individual to get medical help? But they decided that that wasn't appropriate and they took him to the church. That would have changed everything. Most importantly, Christine's life could possibly have been spared had Michael been transported to a hospital rather than have been convinced of his own demonic possession. But such is the life of an enthusiastic exorcist. The hammer was focused on the nail. And Reverend Vincent was successful in convincing Michael to join him at St. Thomas's. One interesting detail that was perhaps carelessly overlooked by investigators was Michael Taylor's accusation that Marie Robinson was, at the very least, a Satanist and was most likely herself possessed by the devil. But obviously a man accused of a grisly crime whose sole defense is that he was insane at the time of the murder then really why would anyone believe his supernatural claims about a woman he once claimed to love? But if we dig a bit deeper into Marie's religious background, we find the possibility that Michael might not have been too far off. If we go back more than 250 years to London in 1718, we'd find a member of English high society named Philip, Duke of Wharton. Lord Wharton was made a duke by King George I and was a prominent member of Parliament. But, to those who knew him, he lived two distinctive separate lives. He was at once a man of letters, as well as a drunkard, a rioter, an infidel, and a rake. Among many other accomplishments, including becoming the Grand Master of English Freemasonry, Lord Wharton was famous in his earlier years for starting the Hellfire Club, a private society that was strictly confidential. Barely any of the reported thousands of members are known. The club welcomed women into their ranks, exceedingly rare at the time, and met in the private homes of members, very similar to Christian fellowship groups centuries later. What's interesting about the Hellfire Club is its charter. While there were many gentlemen's clubs in London at the time that catered to a variety of subjects, poetry, science, politics, philosophy, the Hellfire Club existed to rage against organized religion. There was, at the time, a strange cultural interest in public blasphemy. 
It didn't last long, but Lord Wharton capitalized on the trend and his club became something of a satirical sensation, at least on the surface. Religious scholars have brought up the possibility that the satirical nature of the club's reputation allowed them to hide in plain sight. So much so that Lord Wharton claimed the leader of his club to be Satan himself. There were widespread rumors of satanic worship and occult-inspired rituals from the very beginning. And although this first incarnation of the Hellfire Club was forced to disband just three years after it was founded, the club continues to exist in various forms under various names, it is believed, up to the present day. I mentioned earlier that very, very few names of members of this club are known to history. Less than a hundred, actually. But if you're a fan of season one of The Devil Within, there's a name on that list that will definitely jump out at you. Richard Cross. When the future millionaire industrialist Richard Cross left his home in London to seek his fortune in America in the spring of 1874, he brought with him an obsession for the occult that would, more than 100 years later, wield a terrible influence over a teenage boy that would lead him down a dark and mysterious road that ended in violence. But Mr. Cross would leave behind a legacy in London as well. A legacy of curiosity in the occult and a burgeoning interest in the practice of Satanism. Because, think about it, as an anonymous member of a secret society that welcomed women in leadership positions, Richard Cross, as well as other members of the Hellfire, was a bridge between generations tasked with keeping the society and its beliefs alive and growing. So it's not out of the question to suggest that Marie Robinson was actually a Satanist, schooled in the secret living rooms of the Hellfire Club, polishing her skills as an orator and doing the work of the devil. Why would Michael accuse her of being a Satanist? When he felt betrayed by Marie, was that the catalyst for coming clean with information that Marie herself had told him? Did Marie try to recruit Michael, a task she failed at, and was then required to conjure up the need for an exorcism to cover her own tracks? She knew Reverend Vincent would jump at the chance, didn't she? And what about Mavis Smith? Rather than a botched exorcism, was that actually Marie introducing demons into a spiritually vulnerable person? In Michael's own words, the devil had been put into his wife. Michael believed that to the point that he felt he needed to destroy her in order to defeat the evil that existed within her. That's an incredibly sincere level of belief, a level that makes someone think that murder is the only option. What made Michael so sincere in his belief that Marie was in league with the devil? It was less than a year later that a local newspaper would report a remarkable story concerning the Reverend Vincent's wife, Sally. It concerned Marie Robinson. Sally Vincent claimed to have proof that Marie was a Satanist. Now, we also know through sworn testimony that, Satanism aside, Sally Vincent had a very low opinion of Marie. 
that could be chalked up to a middle-aged woman looking down her nose at a younger, prettier woman in her midst that needed to be dealt with. But what about this proof that Marie was a Satanist? What was it, and how did she come by it? And perhaps most importantly, did she tell Michael about this? Either to protect him or warn him off once his infatuation with Marie was made known. From what information is out there, it was believed that Marie belonged to additional fellowship groups, and at least one was believed to be a satanic cult, quite possibly with Marie as the group's leader. If you remember back in season one, it was New Jersey police detective Paul Hart who was tasked with explaining to a group of concerned parents who were worried that their children might be exposed to Satanism, that it was already too late. They had already been exposed to the Antichrist innumerable times at church. They were taught that God exists and Jesus is real and his teachings were the perfect word straight from the creator of the universe. Those teachings included fallen angels, the possibility of demonic possession, and the all-too-real possibility of spirits from hell claiming dominion in our world, in our children. Who's to say that Marie Robinson, a self-described, quote, Jesus freak, hadn't, like young Tommy Sullivan, decided to go in a different direction? To, rather than preach the word of God, recruit for the army of Satan. Apart from Sally Vincent's comments about Marie Robinson in the local paper, she stayed quiet regarding any additional accusations. Michael, on the other hand, was adamant. Again, we'll probably never know. The words of a man deemed insane by the courts would most likely fall flat when he spoke of the occult or things supernatural. However, the legacy of Richard Cross remains. Team Exorcism and the Guide to Recognizing Your Demons. After the break. One of the many weird things about the exorcism of Michael Taylor is what can only be described as laziness. Reverend Vincent and his team seemed super lazy in comparison to what other exorcists do and have done in the past. The first thing Reverend Vincent did when he realized he had a live one was bring in some religious backup. A nearby Methodist priest named Reverend Ray Smith was recruited at the last minute to help out and make sure things didn't get out of hand. That wasn't the lazy part. That was actually a good idea. The first and only good idea that Reverend Vincent would have that night. Remember, it was Reverend Smith who suggested that Michael be taken to a doctor, a suggestion that was ignored by Reverend Vincent. The lazy part comes in the strange and completely dismissed idea that deals with the naming of the demons that you're going to do battle with. As mentioned in an earlier episode, it's a common practice in the Roman Rite. But at St. Thomas's that night, we had an Anglican and a Methodist. So the Roman Rite was out the window. Instead, at the inquest, Peter Vincent mentioned 
the, quote, tendencies, unquote, of the demons he and Reverend Smith identified within Michael. Reverend Vincent appeared from later testimony to believe that you have a, a demon whose kind of remit is lust, uh, another one whose remit is violence or whatever it might be. That's certainly what is apparent from his later testimony. This is caused by a demon somehow creating this situation. And, and that's what he suggests to Michael. There were others. Blasphemy, incest, lewdness, bestiality. We can assume all the deadly sins were covered. Gluttony, pride, wrath, sloth, envy, greed, and lust. But it's so much more than that. What about the demons that lie to you? Or the demons that actually aren't that bad? I mean, Astaroth is just a really loud breather. Seriously. And the demon Citri simply, quote, inflameth men with women's love, unquote. Admittedly, in this case, that proved bothersome. But, I mean, otherwise. Then the demon Aim gives you knowledge of unknown things. And Ronove, as mentioned in an earlier episode, allows you to speak and understand any language. It's not too shabby. And Vassal is the third in line for the throne of hell. And all he wants to do is help you find things that have been lost. But then there's Asmodee, demon of wickedness and twisted sexual desires. Sure, he'll obey the commands of the Almighty, but you have to call him by his name. And if you aren't familiar with Paimon, you won't know that you need to make an offering to this great king and loyal servant to Lucifer. So that's what I mean when I accuse Reverend Vincent of laziness. It just seems like he didn't do his homework. And because of that, Michael Taylor seems to have had a very hard time of things. Well, we know he resisted to some extent. But then at the same time, they got into the church. And even though there were three grown men, I don't think there's any evidence that they literally bundled him there physically. So... One presumes there was at least an, an element of acquiescence to Michael going to the church. But I think you've got to bear in mind the state that Michael was in. It, just imagine, just imagine, you haven't slept for days. You're hallucinating with tiredness, with shame. You must know what the neighbours are thinking about you. You are at your lowest, the, the lowest of the low. You don't know where to turn to. You don't know what to think. I mean, I don't know if you've ever gone without sleep for two or three days, but I mean, it is the most extraordinary sensation. I mean, you, you literally do start hallucinating. It's very, very odd. He's a man who desperately, desperately needs to sleep for a couple of days. And he's, he's not on the edge. He's beyond the edge. This is a very, very disturbed person in that state. You are very, very helplessly open to suggestion. And anybody that says, look, there's a way out of this, and I've got the way out of it, you, you'd follow. They, they got him to the church, and then they did tie him down. And I think the reason was is that they'd be saying to Michael, look, this could be very difficult. Uh, you know, casting out a demon is good. This could be physical, and, you know, we've seen this before, and you probably will need to be restrained. So we don't know how much level of coercion there was, whether they literally tied him up or whether Michael acquiesced. But one way or another, we do know that he was restrained. Exhausted, 
emotionally broken, very likely hallucinating from lack of sleep, and now restrained, probably against his will and facing down an exorcism. What could possibly have been going through Michael Taylor's mind? They started the exorcism, and this is when we do know something about the technique. They had small symbols of the cross, one of which was pushed into his mouth. They sprinkled the church's holy water on him. Bear in mind, he's died down. And then they, um, they called on the demons to come out. And according to the Reverend Vincent, inside Michael were not just one, but many spirits. There was one called incest, uh, another that called himself bestiality, um, one was called masochism, heresy, and so on. It was one crucial omission which we'll come to. But anyway, all of these terrible behaviors were caused by individual demons. So this wasn't a process of, you know, come out, Satan, that's it. No, 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 this was, uh, uh, there were many. In Christian belief systems, God is more powerful than the devil. And they would always say that that's what, you know, people get wrong and, and the, the ultimately God is stronger and, and the power of Jesus is stronger. And that's what you need to do is to impress upon the spirit who's in spiritual control. Of course, um, different demons, different spirits have different strengths and some may be more formidable adversaries than other. It's a personal battle. The spirits are personal things. They have personalities. They are real beings. We're not talking about ideas. They are real beings. They're real in a spiritual sense. Bound at the wrists and ankles, a wooden crucifix shoved into his mouth, men standing over him, yelling and throwing holy water over his face and body. Then it got physical. These guys went hands-on to expel these demons of the spirit world. This checks a lot of boxes if you're making a case that Michael Taylor was tortured for eight hours. I think that the mental torture is probably the worst of all. Imagine if you're losing your mind and you think or suspect or feel that there is something within you which is causing you to do terrible, terrible things. And then somebody comes along and says, yes, yes, you're right, and we're going to strap you down, and we're going to talk to these things. And the, the terrible, terrible things, incest, bestiality, all of these things, and that we must take them out of you. Imagine if you're in a suggestible state, what that does to you. Is it any wonder that you went, you go berserk? I mean, you, you, you are in a very, very, very vulnerable state. And for all the history of everything we've talking about, and now we're here. Over 40 demons, but unbelievably, they felt their work was unfinished. By the early morning, they were all very, very tired. Dawn was breaking, and it was decision time for Team Exorcist. Nobody had had any sleep by this point, and they wanted a break, and they wanted a cup of tea. Very English. They wanted to take a break, and they felt they'd done good work, and it shows the confidence in the uh, in their process. That's right. They decided to stop for tea. 
But there was just one small problem. There was one demon which they had not succeeded in removing, exorcising from Michael. So they had taken out all these terrible ones that we've talked about. But there was one in there, an evil spirit of murder. And this was unfinished work. So by their own confession, I, w- I want to stress this. This is the Reverend Vincent's words, n- not mine. He said, we had not yet been able to expel the spirit of murder. We knew that was still within him, but, you know, it had been a long night and we needed to rest. And and I knew this was still there, so we had to take a break at this point. And we felt we'd done good work, but we knew that the spirit of murder was still within Michael. So that was unfinished. Actually, according to the testimony of Reverend Vincent, there were three demons left in Michael when they called a timeout to grab a cup of tea and maybe a quick nap. What demons were they? Insanity, violence, and murder. Michael was a complete mess, tired to the point of delusion, physically beaten, emotionally destroyed. He needed medical care and probably three full days of sleep, not a cup of tea and a nap. Did they take him to a hospital? No, but incredibly, they did call the police to, I don't know, warn them? They actually called the police, unbelievably, to say, we've just uh, exercised a very, you know, disturbed fellow, and we just wanted to let you know. (laughs) I'd I'd love to have a recording of that conversation with apparently the local police constables. Imagine you're on an early morning shift, you know, sort of breakfast shift, uh, um, and suddenly you get a call from a priest saying, we've, we've just exercised a fellow up at St. Thomas's. Um, we haven't finished yet, but we're going to take a break and just thought we'd like to let you know. The police officer apparently was, as I think we all would be, was fairly bemused and said, um, well, you know, perhaps you should uh, take him to a doctor. But for reasons we don't really know, they said, we're going to drop you back at home, Michael, and um, continue to carry this on later. So they dropped Michael off at home and took a break. For the insanity that Reverend Vincent fostered and displayed that night in St. Thomas's, unfortunately, he was right about one thing. The demon of murder was in complete control of Michael Taylor. On the season finale of The Devil Within, We revisit the morning of the murder of Christine Taylor and follow the case through the arrest and trial of Michael Taylor. The verdict and punishment and what Michael Taylor is doing today. That's right. He's still alive. That's next time on the season finale of The Devil Within. The Devil Within Season 2, The Demons of Yorkshire is a Cavalry Audio production. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed all episodes. Music by Soundstripe and Blue Dot Sessions. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.